welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thank you, Pete. Uh, let, me, let me pray before we start. Father, we pray you would inspire us with some of these great giants who've gone before us in the faith. Would you show us the bits of them that we need to learn from, the examples they are to us over the coming weeks, and may we be fired up to develop our own living faith in new ways in this season. And I pray anything that came from my brain would fall away, anything that's really from you, Lord, would be heard. Amen. Well, working in, working in politics, you do have a few head-in-your-hands moments. Uh, well, more than a few, to be honest. But as I was preparing for this, one thing I remembered. And a couple of years ago, uh, David Cameron had been invited to a European Union summit about employment. Remember that guy? Um, he was around a while ago. Um, he couldn't make it, though, so he sent his cabinet minister at the time for that area, Ian Duncan Smith, to Brussels. Now, this was a very formal meeting. It was chaired by Angela Merkel, the leader of Germany, and all the other European leaders were there, Europe's most senior politicians. had all come to update each other about what was happening in the context of employment in their countries. And it was, uh, it was one of those meetings where you'd all sit around the table, uh, you'd put your headsets on, translations, headsets off, listening well. After about an hour and a half, it was, Ian was struggling. This was not the most interesting of... At meetings, and so Angela Merkel eventually calls Ian. She sort of says, "Her eye on. Would you like to speak?" Which he sort of assumed was him. So he thought, "I'm going to break the ice a little bit, lighten it up, because this is tough going." So he gets to his feet, and everyone puts their headsets on, and he says, uh, "Thank you, Frau Merkel, um, but I'm going to have to keep this brief because we've all been sat here for an hour and a half, and I have lost the will to live." And uh, he thought he might get a little ripple of amusement, but absolute stunned silence. <laughs> they are staring at him. Angela Merkel looks like she's about to kill him. Uh, this has not gone down well. Uh, they're all looking pretty shocked and unhappy. And he uh, finds that a bit odd and carries on and finishes the presentation. They're still staring at him. He's wondering what diplomatic incident he's caused. Anyway, it gets to the end of the meeting. She closes it. And over comes the Irish Prime Minister who says, uh, hi, Ian. And he says, hi, that was a bit odd because I just made that little joke and nobody, it wasn't even a ripple of amusement in the room. And uh, he says, yeah, that stuff doesn't really work here because uh, when you said, I'm going to have to keep this brief because we've been sat here for an hour and a half and I've lost the will to live, they translated it as, I'm going to have to keep this brief because we've been sat here for an hour and a half and I'm terminally ill. <laughs> um, and, and so he realizes they've all been staring at him thinking he's about to die. And they're all thinking, what happens if a cabinet minister from Britain dies at the European Union? This isn't going to help. And they're thinking, what a brave man. Uh, and what, what a brutal prime minister for sending a terminally ill man to a <laughs> European summit about employment. This is outrageous. But Ian said, actually, the worst bit was, at the end of it, uh, he realized that he'd sat down um, and had offered to come back in six months and update them uh, on progress. So, um, <laughs> you can put your faith in the wrong things in life. 
if you're ever at the European Union, not that any of us will be for much longer, do not trust the translators, uh, a single word of it. Um, as Peter said <laughs> this morning, we are beginning this new series on living faith um, for all the reasons as has been outlined. Um, even in the US the other day, academics said that people with a faith tend to live longer. They reckon by about six years. Um, and we want to ask, you know, because that's the motive, we want to ask some of the big questions. How do we learn from these biblical heroes? And how do we grow in living faith? We don't just want to think about it. We want practical examples. We want to genuinely start trying to grow in our living faith. And faith is hotly contested territory, as we know in Britain today. Uh, but it seems the, context, the, the actual concept of faith itself is often under attack in a way that you maybe don't find elsewhere around the world. Somehow faith is at times seen as a little bit out of step with the advanced uh, Western civilization. Um, people of faith sometimes characterized as unthinking or needy or somehow kind of brainwashed when they were young. The, the wisdom, the prevailing winds have said, the only person you can really have faith in is yourself. Live for today. Do what makes you feel good. Deal with what you can see. Faith is this naive leap in the dark, a figment of your imagination. But there are signs this is changing. There are some who respect faith more and more, but they see it as this sort of private set of values that are pretty harmless. Or others would like their kids to sort of understand about the Bible, but um, that's about it. And others sort of see it as a motive for, for the do-gooders. But if you look for the signs, things are stirring. With all that's going on to shake the economic, social, political settlement we have, there is a new atmosphere, I believe, emerging when it comes to faith. I was struck at wildfires by Nicky Gumbel, who said he'd observed a major shift in recent times, particularly through the Alpha Course, moving from a hostile climate to faith to an open, questioning climate. People coming, looking for something in new ways that they hadn't seen before. More and more, we hear incredible stories of transformation, lives changed, meeting Jesus. Look at the way our university campuses are coming alive, fusion and other things. Look at thy kingdom come, this wave of prayer sweeping and getting bigger every single year. Right here at Emmaus, on stage, Lives changed two weeks ago, baptism stories, some of the most remarkable things happening. Lives rescued from sects and drugs and alcohol and shame. Incredible. Others faithfully standing here and saying, I'm all in for faith in a new way like never before. This stuff may not hit our TV screens or our radios or our newspapers, but this is the news this is the exciting news, and we're so privileged to be watching it. Jesus is doing something in this country, stirring something up, and we're right here, able to play a part. Nothing else is getting close to this. And when it comes to faith, perhaps it's all coming into play again. Perhaps the character of our times, the life and soul of this nation is up for grabs again. So in the coming weeks, we do want to look at this Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, 12, and learn from it. And this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 11, uh, 1 to 6. If you have your Bibles, do turn to that. I think it's going to come up as well. Thank you behind me. Particularly, we're looking at e Enoch and, and Abel. 
It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought a better offering to God than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's a lot there in six verses. It defines faith. Abel and Enoch are called out as early giants, the pioneers of the faith, even though, as Pete said, which is an absolute nightmare when you're preparing a sermon, there's actually very little written about them in scriptures. We're then told it's impossible to please God without faith because we need to acknowledge him before we come to him. And we're told he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So here in Guildford and in, this, in the UK, how should we start to think of this living faith? Well, in the first verse, there is that definition. Confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in our hope. Assurance, even though we can't see. And faith is inherently this blend of total conviction, reality, and hope and belief. We don't have all the answers, but we can be real about that. At its best, faith is complete assurance in what you believe even under intense pressure. Sometimes we're clinging on to faith, to be honest, with our fingernails. Other times it's the easiest choice in the world, but God does call us to choose him without the full picture. Corrie ten Boom, who was a Dutch Christian in the midst of the Nazi Holocaust, who helped many Jewish people to flee, said that faith is something that sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, receives the impossible. In the midst of that evil, she didn't lose her faith. She just went and leapt even further towards this God of hope. That is what faith needs to mean for us. But in verse 6, there is also a pretty blunt warning. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So why? Well, in one sense, it is obvious, and it says it. You need to have faith in order to come to God and to believe in him. But if we're honest with ourselves, having faith isn't the same as living in faith. Having faith isn't the full picture. Faith also has to change how we live. And I suspect this is the other reason it's impossible to please God without faith. Charles Kingsley, who was a remarkable 19th century English clergyman, wrote, I do not want merely to possess a faith. I want a faith that possesses me. I do not merely want to possess a faith. I want a faith that possesses me. How we need to echo his cry this morning, because if we let it, faith shapes not just what we believe, but how we live, used well, it fires us in the right direction to 
pursue God, take risks, winning others for the kingdom. And the Bible is packed full with people who become beacons of faith for the kingdom as a result of their initial living faith. We'll look at Abel in a second who made a costly, faithful offering. Enoch walked with God as well as we'll see, but even people like Martha, you know, it's an amazing, it's an amazing story, the Lazarus story, but one thing that's quite easy to miss is that they all started, this stunning change of events was triggered by Martha and Mary and their initial living faith. In faith, you see, they sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And then, although he arrives too late, of course, they say again, in faith, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, God can give you whatever you ask. And you can imagine them, a mixture of anger and shock and grief, but this flame of faith still burning. And Mary says the same in faith. Please, you can still do this. Jesus does, of course, raise him from the dead. And we read that many people came to see, not just Jesus, but also Lazarus. Many people came to believe because of what they saw. But actually, if we look at it, it all began with Martha going to Jesus in living faith. And then comes this avalanche for the kingdom. So we please God through faith because like this, it changes how we live, what we hope for, how we ask God in to change the course of events. And this early part of Hebrews is clear. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. But without him, without faith, it is impossible to please him because we need to know him and we need to live for him. Hebrews 11 then goes on to talk about earnestly seeking God in this living faith, calling out Abel and Enoch. So what are some of the examples? What are some of the lessons for living faith we can take from their lives? Well, four struck me as I was preparing for this morning. And I really hope they are the nudges. I pray they are the nudges we might need to learn from these two men and from others in, in Hebrews as we start this new series. That first lesson for living faith. Obvious, but absolutely non-negotiable. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and vitally the perfecter of our faith. When it comes to the subject of faith, there's this message relayed over and over and over again. We have to keep moving with eyes on God on a regular basis. And use of the word perfecter here to describe Jesus shows us it is a process. This is something we work at. It's not just a badge we wear, faith. It's not just this sort of navigation system we download once and we're done. Enoch can really inspire us here. We're told in Genesis that he walked faithfully with God for more than 300 years at a time before the flood when so many weren't. And some said of Enoch that this was a man who lived a life of communion with God. What an incredible thing for us to strive for on a daily basis. So faithful was Enoch, we read, that God took him and he didn't experience death. Now, don't get your hopes up. Uh, It's clearly a very rare thing. But how Enoch must have fixed his eyes 
on God with such consistency against the pressures of the time. This was a walk for many, many years on a regular basis. This was not just a faith moment. And for it, Enoch was commended as someone who pleased God. And in Matthew, again, Jesus tells us to walk with him, work with him, learn from him all the way through Scripture. We're told this is about running a race. We've heard it again just this morning. It's about the same message. Keep our eyes fixed on him. Enthrone him daily in our lives. Give him his rightful place. Because when we do that, our living faith grows. And in this, it's the little choices in the quiet moments that all add up. It's the, the moments where we can choose other things. But we know daily habits, they build up our faith or they knock it down. What are your little habits? Faced with those little choices in the quiet moments, do we choose him enough? This year I've been trying and often failing, honestly, to start and end each day, bookend it with some time, almost like getting dressed and undressed, part of the routine. And when I slip up, I can see the difference of a week largely without Jesus and a week with him. Faith is not just a comfort thing like they'd have us believe. It's a fuel for life. In a bad week, my energy, my compassion, my grace, my purpose, it all dips. This is real stuff. Living faith is our fuel. Enoch showed it to us with a faithful, consistent walk regularly with God. And are we as serious about that as we need to be? And by the way, we do that in community. Jesus built a team. We are a church. I loved what Pete said at Wildfires. God anoints holy relationships more than heroic individuals. This is something we do together. Fix our eyes on Jesus if we want to grow in living faith. The second lesson from these two is give God our sacrificial best and hide nothing. Living faith means our very best. Look at Abel again in Genesis 4.4. We read, Abel, he killed the firstborn lamb from one of his sheep and gave God the best parts of it. The Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering. In faith, Abel gave God, as one translation puts it, the choice cuts of meat. This was a costly offering, an offering made in faith, in uncertainty. There are parallels of Jesus. This is the firstborn, the sacrificial lamb, the very best. Cain, meanwhile, we, brought, we read, brought some of his crops, which doesn't really have the same sort of ring to it. Um, it doesn't sound particularly costly. And this is what Hebrews means when it says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering. Than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, because of this costly offering, he still speaks to us, even though he is dead. His example lives on after death because of his sacrificial offering in life. And for some of us, to get that, it means we have to quit hiding parts of our lives from God. It's actually laughable when we try and hide stuff from God or give him our second best. Do we think he really can't see the areas we prefer to brush over? The other day, I was playing hide-and-seek with my four-year-old, and he told me he was going to go and hide, and 
he told me to count to like 100 billion and one. And um, after about eight seconds, the hunt was on. But I'd heard him stomping off. I opened my eyes. The first thing I see under the chair is two feet sticking out. He's laughing to himself. He's shuffling around. He's completely convinced he's got me. He's out of sight. Not a chance I'm going to find him. And I, you know, when we hide stuff from God, when we don't give him the best, when we don't acknowledge stuff in prayer that we know he's dealing with, I bet it's a bit like that for him. He sees it all. He just wants that honest relationship and recognition. He wants our best as we try and grow in living faith with him. So are we going to give him our best? Are we going to be real in our walk as we do this together, as we fix our eyes on Jesus? Give him your sacrificial best and hide nothing. The third living faith lesson from Hebrews 11, 1 to 6. Try to cling on through the suffering. This isn't said lightly because I'm so conscious just how many among us are going through really deeply painful stuff at the moment, raw, difficult, faith-stretching stuff. And others of us in a better place at the moment still know that our faith comes under intense pressure at times, not just in the general climate, but in the inevitable setbacks of life. And Tim Keller, the brilliant U.S., uh, theologian wrote, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, successful with our careers, something will inevitably ruin it. And the Bible's equally real with us in James 1.3. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced out into the open and shows its true colors. Think of all the setbacks over those years for someone like Enoch walking consistently for centuries in those times. Think how easy it would have been for him to turn away. Think of all the others in the scriptures in those early days who did turn away, who didn't walk with God, who you could clearly say weren't in communion, weren't living a life in communion with God in those days. But Enoch, we're told, persevered for centuries, setting an example, a giant of the faith, walking with God, seeking to please him with his life. So... The question for us when these times hit is what next? And that, as I say, for many of us in the middle of a storm right now, isn't a hypothetical question. It's a wrestling issue for us. But if we're not careful, the pain, when it comes, begins to erode our faith. You know, we might think of God as this incredible statue, this amazing carving. And then all of a sudden, grief hits and a bit of it's chiseled away. We lose somebody. We lose our job, we have money worries, we get sick, unanswered prayer, it's all chiseled away. And before we know it, if we're not careful, this amazing image of God has been half destroyed. But if we're also honest, before these setbacks come to us, we've known they happen. We see intense suffering through the years and around us today, and yet we've chosen an all-loving God. Many times I've wrestled with this before we had uh, kids, we had so many miscarriages. And it was incredibly difficult. It felt lonely. We were grieving. We were angry. We were confused. We were seeing prayers unanswered. And it's so, it's so easy to say this stuff in the high moments and tough to choose it in the low moments. And I'll definitely be in the queue called, what the flipping heck was that about, when we get to heaven. But 
we, our faith is, of course, under pressure, but we cannot let it go out, even if it dims. Don't let your faith flame go out because some of the struggles may have come to us. We have to give everything, however hard it is, to strive beyond the initial circumstances, the pain, even if it's the silent prayer, a quiet cry out, and amen. And in Peter 1.5, there's a rallying call. It says, keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on the faith. The suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ, internal and glorious plans they are, will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. And we see from heroes of the faith like Enoch and Abel and others that from the ashes of our bodies and our lives, God can bring from that wreckage great beauty. Again, think about the people on this stage, baptized recently, brought back from the brink in ways completely unimaginable. Even in death, we read Abel still speaks today because of that sacrificial offering he made in life. What a legacy. What a legacy. So don't let go of him because he never lets go of us. It's so easy to say it and so hard to do it, but living faith clings on through the suffering. Fourth and final um, lesson for living faith today. Take God-inspired risks for the kingdom. On Christmas Day in 1939, in his speech to the nation, with Britain newly at war, families fearful, an uncertain future, King George VI read from a poem called The Gate of the Year. And he said... And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. We have to take his hand and walk into the unknown if we want to grow and develop and practice our living faith. We've got to take God-inspired risks for the kingdom. He's our rock, our foundation, our insurance policy. If we as Christians can't be people of risk today, who are willing to step out onto the water, who will? If we can't have assurance in our faith to do stuff for the kingdom, who will? Living risky lives should mark us out as Christians. It should be what they say about us when they talk about us. And this hall of fame in Hebrews is packed full of risk takers. Abel, as I've said, his offering is risky. It's costly. Who knows what God will do with it? Could he have afforded it? We don't know. We're told it was sacrificial risk. Cain's wasn't. Enoch's walk with God was risky. In a dark time, most didn't choose that. And I just sense we need to start flexing those faith muscles as a church in new ways in the life of Emmaus, and as we go into this new season. Again, I was inspired at wildfires by the, was the vicar at St. Saviour's actually who had that prophecy. And it was a word for a man who nearly died in a car accident, who had been taken to very rock bottom, struggling with his pain, slow healing. And God came and delivered an absolute arrow of a message that changed his complete outlook and lifted him up 
because the vicars and saviors had a prophecy. And Pete said to him, how certain were you about this, this word? And the guy said, I was about 10% certain. So yes, we be careful. Yes, we understand how prophecy works, but let's be 10% people in our work, in our walk life with Jesus. In our faith, let's take the risks. Maybe it's just the first small step. You don't even have to meet God halfway. It might be that door you've been meaning to knock on, that conversation you just need to start, the text you need to send. And some of the people we read about paid the ultimate price, took the ultimate risk for their faith, threatened with death and persecution, but so convinced of of their faith were they. They took the ultimate risk. Abel, this morning, we read, paid the ultimate price for his offering. Who's willing to take it and live risky lives? And we see this happening today. I mean, it may have been mentioned this morning, but this week I was at CSW, brilliant uh, religious freedom organization, and we had a call with a, a Nigerian leader who said last weekend 200 Nigerians, Christians, slaughtered in the villages by extremists. Happening right now. We won't have to pay that kind of price, probably. But let us use it to inspire riskier living. Push out in our daily lives. So this living faith that God calls us to takes God-inspired risks for his kingdom. So, in summary, as we start this new series, this nation needs authentic Deep, living faith, maybe like never before. People are opening up. This is coming into play again if we look for the signs. Let's not miss it. Living faith isn't just a badge, though. It isn't just a belief system we inhale. This has to change how we live. And God's call through these people, through Abel and Enoch and all the others we're going to come to over the coming weeks, is pretty clear. Just four things this morning. We fix our eyes on him daily if we want to grow in living faith. We give him our sacrificial best and stop hiding stuff if we want to grow in living faith. We cling on through the suffering and the immense pressure we come under. And we take God-inspired risks for his kingdom. And we're told he rewards us if we earnestly do that. Treasures in heaven, harvest for the kingdom, Incredible transformation if we step out in living faith. So my prayer this morning is that with God's help in the coming weeks, through these incredible giants of the faith who teach us how to approach living faith, we will grow individually and as a church in this coming season and we will change the environment and the character of our times because we do so. Amen.